Hey everybody, Brian Zane here with another edition of Wrestling with Regret. Wait a minute, hang on. Where am I? This isn't this isn't YouTube. This isn't the Cinnabon. Where the hell am I? Gaming Street Irregulars? Well, I know a thing or two about gaming and certainly being irregular, but no, this is not my scene. I'm out of here. <laughs> Good afternoon, good evening, good whatever time of day it is. Welcome once again to Gaming Street Irregulars. My name's James Iris, joined by Chrissy Harding. Hi, everyone. And we don't have an opening gag this time because uh, sometimes the truth is stranger than fiction, and that is the case with some of these games. Especially, you know, you know, you know reality has gotten warped when even The Onion looks like an actual ta- tagline and literally is like, we're done. Hmm. So... These are games that should kind of is surprising they got made. I mean, it was the 80s, 70s, and 80s. There was a lot of weird stuff going on back then. I don't know why people want to bring it back, but they do. Especially the fashion. Please let that fashion die. Mm, Yeah, better off bringing back 90s fashion. At least that was reasonably sedate. At least that made sense. But uh, we've each got a a few games, and for my list... I only wound up with five, and I wanted to avoid any games by Atari, anything by Activision, or iMagic, or even Parker Brothers. Generally, the uh, higher tier of Atari's uh, uh, publishers and third-party affiliates, well, things weren't affiliated. It was the Wild West of game Mm -hmm. development in the late 70s, early 80s, and... The fact that nearly everybody was trying to get in on this and cash in is kind of proof to why some of these games came to be. Mm-hmm. Like my first game, Lost Luggage, from Apollo in 1981. What? This is honestly the least weird of these games I want to look at. Is It plays a little bit like Kaboom, just okay. with luggage. You have to catch all of them, or they open up. And all your dirty laundry and unmentionables fly all over the airport. Okay. I think we just started out of the gate pretty strong. <laughs> what the heck? Yeah. Now, and I have to give a big, massive shout out to one of my primary research sources for this, the YouTube channel, The No Swear Gamer. He has a massive, extensive list of over 250 Atari 2600 reviews. Oh my god. Including four of the five games I'm going to be talking about today. I definitely need to check out this channel. I didn't have the same restrictions as James did. I kind of did this as literally taking two millennials, looking at a bunch of Atari games, and literally having them go, oh my god, that is so weird. (laughs) And then proceed to ask me what the hell we were smoking back then. I'm like, it was the 80s, that's all you need to know. Now it gets weirder with lost luggage though. You oh, see, no. the manual describes all of this as being specifically your luggage. Exactly no. how heavy were you traveling, pal? Yeah, seriously, like, dude, like, are you Princess Vespa from Spaceballs? Like, come on. <laughs> and even better, yes, this gets even better. 
<laughs> oh my god. This is like, and then. In the hard mode, there's terrorist bombs you have to catch that are in black suitcases. Again, these are supposedly yours. Oh my god. Okay. Now this is one of the ones I marked as being less weird. I, I I have I have no words. By the way, just so everyone realizes this was these were marketed at possibly kids and young adults. Like oh, that yes. range. So this isn't just something that they put out there like some of the weird ones I came across were more adult oriented. There's adult or as adult oriented as Atari twenty six hundred could get. They, none oh, of those. Oh, I've on got my one list. of those on my list. Is it Porky? No, worse. Oh, is it is it Colonel Mustard? Or uh, we'll get there. Oh God, this is sad. So, yeah, okay, that kind of that kind of that. If this is the if this is your opening shot. It can only get stranger from here. Like, I think I'm looking at you, listening to yours. I'm like, wow, I feel like my list is tame now. Like, <laughs> well, let's, let's hear what your first one is anyway. You so, may surprise me. I may surprise myself. So one of the big things back then was product placement. And this could oh, be. Oh, yes. Any- I think I know where you're going with this one. So there was, there's a couple of them. But the one that kind of threw both me and my nieces off was the fact that Johnson & Johnson made a video game, and it was called Tooth Protectors. Oh, I've heard of this one. So what this is, you pretty much are deflecting uh, rotten teeth rotting food particles from injuring your pearly whites. It was a lot, looked a lot like um, Space Invaders in a way. Okay. In this, it was an advert game made available only by mailing in a proof of purchase from Crest Toothpaste. So on a platform of teeth, you have a shield of fluoride protecting your teeth from getting damaged by the sinister snack attacker. If more than three of his cavity-causing crusties get by you, it's time to bring in the big guns, which is a toothbrush and dental floss. One of the uh, sites that I found this one on the write-up for it, because no one else had heard of this game. Like, this was the only site that actually showed, like, actual, like, video game footage. Or pictures from the video game plus the box art. Um, it was made by Johnson & Johnson. So it wasn't like, I don't, they didn't give credit to any other studio for it. It just says Pre- Johnson & Johnson Presents. So what they said is they liked about it was it promoted dental hygiene. It had clever character design and animations. However, once you get past the first few levels, it's out to get you. And the and the movement was pretty. The uh, it had very stiff uh, movement controls. So this was one of those ones where we were looking at the pictures of it, and we we're like, "What the hell?" Now, you <laughs> want to know the crazy thing? Yeah, that's not the only tooth decay themed video game out there. Oh, I'm pretty sure there was more, but I just... I'm sure you've heard of Plaque Attack from Activision. Yeah, and I'm sure that was sponsored by Johnson & Johnson as well. Nope, that was an original idea of all their own. Okay. Yeah. But speaking of games sponsored by other companies, I had to turn my attention to Ralston Purina for my second one. Oh, really? Yep. Spectrovision, in 1983, made a game that was offered similarly to the one you just described. It was a mail order with proof of purchase and 12.95. This was Chase the Chuck Wagon. Yes, that was on my list too. 
Yeah, it, it's oh. games like this and the Johnson & Johnson one you described and a Kool-Aid game that I'm sure you came across in your research too. Oh, and a Pepsi versus Cola one too. Like I literally was like, what's wrong with you people? <laughs> this was symptomatic of one of the real reasons the industry crashed because everybody and their mother and their mother-in-law and their father-in-law too were trying to get in on this new craze for video games and too many of them just saw dollar signs before they saw development potential now you need to explain to people exactly what chuck wagon was because i think this takes it on a whole new level of weird yeah chuck wagon was a dog food that came with its own gravy so apparently what happened is pretty much a dog food company decided that it was going to create a video game where you play a dog trying to race through a maze to reach a giant chuck wagon at the top while dodging your owner in tumbleweeds. And apparently dog biscuits, too. And apparently now, why dog- a dog would want to jo- dodge dog biscuits? I don't know. Unless they were trying to avoid getting full. Cause, yeah, you know, I guess the, the chuck, chuck wagon way. dog food is that good. Apparently. Of course, if my dog, you know, Oscar would have been like, yo, no, g- g- give me give me all the treats. Oh, I'll still eat my dinner, but give me all the treats. Mm. A part of me is like, do you guys not have dogs? Like, seriously, they'll eat anything. <laughs> they are, well, like, they're not goats. Pretty close to it. That reminds me of a story, but we'll talk about that offline. Not a problem. All right. Yeah, what have you got next, Chrissy? Communist mutants from space. Oh, I've heard of this one. This is on the Spectrovision. And this was done by Starpath um, Corporation. So Arcadia actually changed its name to Starpath. So, And they had to put a disclaimer that it's not associated with Emerson Radio Corp or its games Arcadia 2001. So this had to actually come with a disclaimer on it that, no, this is this is a totally different game from that one. So this is a Space Invader style game. Um, where you're blasting, you know, obviously your ship is blasting at enemies slowly descending. What makes it unique is that, remember, this is the 80s. And all of the aliens are common commies threatening the democracy across the universe. So once you shoot an enemy ship down, the mothership drops an egg to create a new comrade to take to hatch and take its place. Pretty much progressing the level, progressing for the game requires you to blow up the egg, spreading mothership, and rejecting the teachings of Karl Marx. This is actually real life propaganda. This is actually kind of a good way of showing you how seriously back in the 80s people took the Cold War, which was mm. really seriously. It's kind of inventive for a backstory. Um, I have to give credit. The, the cover art is actually kind of cool. It still freaking kills me that the the company still had to put a disclaimer that, no, we're not this other company. We're totally different, really. Yeah, if I remember correctly, this was playable, acquiring a peripheral for the Atari 2600 that hooked it up to a cassette deck. Yeah, it's the supercharger unit. Yeah, which which was a way of getting uh, more programming space. Mm-hmm. On, than a cartridge that based on the cartridge limitations of the time. Yeah. So the website that I got that I got this one off of um, LifeWire says what they like about it was that it was an inventive backstory. 
who 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 knew that aliens follow you know human political uh, economic not political economic affiliations? Various gameplay modes improve on the standard um, shooters formula. So instead of it just being a straight up space shooter, I guess they had different modes to it. What they didn't like it was real life anti Russia Cold War propaganda which obviously didn't age well. And they also stated there was a dis- disappointing lack of communist imagery. So they're like, dude, you're a Cold War thing, but there is no communist imagery in here. It's just a couple of pixels and you're telling us they're commies. Where's the proof? Sounds rather McCarthyist to me. It does too, but Mac- you know, I agree. So what's your next one? Well, I'm going to open this one by asking you a question, Chrissy. Yes. What franchise do you think would make a good Pac-Man clone basis? Which franchise? What do you think would make for good fodder to turn into a Pac-Man clone? Um, back in the back back in those days? Anytime. Anytime? I'd almost want to say actually aliens probably would not make a bad Pac-Man one. But you would have to play I don't believe another- it. You just stumbled upon the game I was going to talk about. But do you play as the mother alien eating humans, or are you playing a human no. character? Ah. You play a human character in this 1982 release from 20th Century Fox, yes, the movie studio, who wanted to capitalize on their properties as they saw the money that Atari was raking in on the Superman game, for instance. And here's where it gets odd. The dots are supposed to be the eggs that the facehuggers hatch from. Okay. So you're basically having to stomp around, squishing all these eggs, never mind that they had they, they were loaded with all these acids and other vile stuff, let alone the facehuggers themselves. Exactly. And then, when you do that, the game goes from being a, a Pac-Man clone to being a Frogger clone. Where you have to... Dis- to guide your nondescript human uh, past rows of aliens marching back and forth to get back to your ship. It's kind of a waste of the license. Yeah. Yeah. Just, I think it would be, I think it would be better if it was like you were like the mother, like the actual queen and you're chasing the humans. Hmm. Yeah. I, I don't think, uh, Video game players were quite ready for that level of, uh, quote-unquote, be the bad guy in that time period. But yet it would have been so revolutionary. It would have. Wow. So, wow. Okay. The kicker is, I hear the gameplay is actually pretty good. Plays a better game of Pac-Man than 2600 Pac-Man. That's a really low bar. True. That that bar's a little low. Just not just saying. So, while we're on guessing, what is the one toy that is in the Toy Hall of Fame that you would never have expected to be turned into a video game? Hmm. You're thinking Rubik's Cube? Rubik's Cube was turned into a video game in the 1980s because, God help you, you didn't need to be frustrated in real life by the actual Rubik's Cube. You had to be frustrated in your computer life, too. Okay, now, I could see making Rubik's Cube into a modern puzzle minigame for a larger game with today's modern controls and graphical interfaces. Mm Mm-hmm. Not on an Atari 2600. 
Oh, yeah. So, pretty much your character had to jump around to the different squares and change their colors until they were all the same color. Of course, being the 80s, people had a lot of fun with, um, one, changing the name of the game because it is an Atari 2600. It was pretty easy to do, which pretty much changed it from Rubik's Cube to Pubic's Cube. Oh, no. And made the toilet humor commence. Again. So, the Rubik's Cube game was actually rebranded and re-released for the Video Cube, an existing Atari um, puzzle game, which seemed to happen a lot back then. So, when they did these kind of copyright-based games, and when they the copyright expired, they would just change the title of the game. Yeah, that happened a lot. Mm-hmm. I mean, one of the most famous examples, Mike Tyson's Punch-Out, which once um, Mike Tyson took kind of broke away from Nintendo, it just became Punch-Out, or Mr. Dream's Punch-Out. So, yeah, so uh, that's just an uh, uh, inkling into some of the toilet humor that will be coming out of this list. Now, what jumped out at me when you were describing that game is somebody was jumping around the cube, changing the colors. Mm -hmm. They turned Rubik's Cube into a Cubert clone? Pretty much. Just, it was a six, it's a, it's a three by three square. So you had to figure out how to change the colors and not change the color. Like you had to try to get all the colors to be the same. Right. Yeah. Huh. Although, although to me, Cubert is a hell of a lot more fun. I'll say. A lot, lot better pre presented, too. Agreed. And, Agreed. And speaking of Cubert, uh, I actually will be talking about that uh, to a certain degree in my next uh, video that I'm doing for Artificial Orange Studios. Oh, cool. I love Cubert. So, my next game, speaking of toilet humor, speaking of raunchiness, we alluded to this earlier... I'm just going to say the name, and I'm half tempted to just leave it at that, because the description of this game is just positively vile. Custer's Revenge. We're done. Yeah. We're if done. You know, if you, you know. Yeah, if you don't know what this game is, and you are under the age of, of 18, do not Google. Yeah, if you are over the age of 18, I'd still seriously do reconsider not Google. Googling. This is most definitely a not safe for work game. And how this one got by the censors, I'm impressed. I will say, though, that the people who developed it, the company Mystique, had the audacity to show the game off to a group of Native American women. And they survived? Yeah, I, I'm, I'm rather surprised, too. Because uh, I would have totally put that one under justifiable homicide. Yeah, that's just wrong. Basically. All right, I'm, I'm going to try to liven this up here a little bit. I'm not sure by how much, but one of the games um, that we found, and it's actually based off of one of my favorite nostalgic TV shows, was MASH. Oh, okay. There was a MASH game. Now, unfortunately, it was not based off of the American show MASH. There was a British version. Really? So this was based off of the British version, and it is the weirdest cross between Chopper Lifter and the Game Boy Operation, where you pretty much had to control, with your thing, a surgical device that looks like a two-headed pitchfork, 
or fork, and you had to go into the patient's body and remove these little dots. And then on a 2600. On a 2600. And then on the flip side, you also were then controlling a chopper trying to drop off patients to the MASH unit. So you were trying to drop the patients on the doctors that were running beneath you for cover. Okay, so you had to go from delicate surgery to white-knuckle helicopter action. Yep, then back to surgery. That is such mood whiplash. Pretty much. Which ironically makes it very appropriate for MASH. Indeed. And the interesting thing, though, most people didn't realize this, is that with the show on BBC, it actually removed the laugh tracks. You know how sometimes MASH would have a laugh track? Yeah, except in the surgery rooms. Except in the surgery rooms. It's the only time they didn't. And they replaced it pretty much with what one reviewer claims is the dying screams of barn owls. Oh, (laughs) I got to go look this up later. Yep, that's pretty. So just so you all know, they did make a MASH video game. It is not based off of the American version. It was based off the British version. Now, my friend Jason actually has a copy of this game because he still has his uh, Atari 2600 with all the video games. And I have seen this game in person, so I can tell you this truly is a real game. And I have seen the cover art, and the cover art is of the ma- of the American MASH. But the developers based it off the British version. Okay. I'm Chrissy? <laughs> Yeah. I'm saving my strongest shot for last. Do you want I don't do want to one? overshadow what your last one is going to be, so why don't you go again? All right, so I have a couple. Uh, this one is for all you tax dodgers out there. You yes. just hit on it. I'm sorry. I will <laughs> let you talk about this one. Okay. <laughs> I'm going to end on that note. How's that? <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> wow. I, 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 here I thought I had the biggest bomb, and you found it too. Tax avoiders. Yep. This one did beat out Revenge of the Beefsteak Tomatoes, but only by so much. So yeah, this was made by American Video Games, and it was their only video game. They were a one-and-done company in 1982, and it was conceived by a former IRS agent. And a uh, SEC agent as well. Right. In this game, you're playing as John Q. Your goal is to make a million dollars after taxes. It -hmm. plays out as a platform style game, a really primitive early one, you know, that Donkey Kong kind of mold, where you're collecting dollar signs and avoiding red tape. And then once a quarter, you get to invest money in solar energy, oil, real estate, etc. And again, this is all being done. In a Donkey Kong format with ladders and elevators. And it's like, this is a very weird abstraction of heavy financial stuff when you get down to it. Yeah, and there are some, and you have to avoid the IRS agents. And there's different modes, I guess. One is the black mode where his name is Eggy, and he's trying to catch you with an audit. When you're caught, you are audited and you always lose. You're then taxed at the maximum rate of 50% and then sent back to work in the income screen. If it is the pink mode, he is Waggy, a CPA who is soliciting your business. If he catches you or you go to him, he charges you $1,000. I think that was the green one. No, it's, according to the pam- pam- pamphlet, it's the it's the pink one. Huh. 
because I was watching uh, No Swear Gamer's review and he had those two reversed. Yeah, the black guy is is the black. A- Eggie, that that one's right. Eggie is uh, Eggie is the one that's called all Crayola black. Yeah, I haven't found the green. Let me see here. When green, he's Waggy's the same person in green as he is in pink. So in green mood, he's called Tootles, which is another advisor who provides you with the best tax shelter investment available. When green, it's in your benefit to catch him. Depending on the amount of time left before your taxes are due, which is the end of the season, it may or may not be beneficial to wait for the IRS agent to become the investment advisor. So apparently they, these characters that you're trying to avoid change, like depending on their color is when you want to avoid them or when you want to be caught by them. The cool thing with this is, is it does include things known as Ponzi schemes. Now, before we get to the Ponzi schemes, I just want to emphasize all three of these characters we just described, despite whatever color they happen to be, they're the same in-game graphic, just switching colors. Yeah. It is the worst case of disassociative personality disorder I've ever seen in a video game. Pretty much. And yes, this was, and I love how the reviewer here goes, no, this was essentially just a sort of Pac-Man clone. He's like, no, this was not its own game. This pretty much became a Pac-Man backslash everything else clone. This this was a punch attacks, guys, just took a, a video game and just put their own graphics over it. <laughs> oh my god. So, I did have a weird one, and I think you would enjoy this, but do you know that there was a Lord of the Rings video game? Back then? That was never released. Okay. On the 2600. On the 2600. And it actually is... Pr- I'm looking at some of the pictures. So there was a Lord of the Rings game. Not based off of Lord of the Rings. But it was kind of... is kind of like this took place in the Lord of Rings universe where you play Frodo and you're trying to go from here to here while being pursued by ring raves and it's not quite an RVP but it was kind of off um, it featured a lot of characters on the book from the book that can be called to protect your character from the bad guys it really wasn't a completed game but it was pretty effing weird to look okay. at because your character's name isn't really Frodo it's Frogert oh <laughs> So it was kind of one of those, it was Lord of the Rings, but it was trying not to say it was Lord of the Rings, because we're pretty sure Tolkien's uh, estate would have had a problem with that. Basically. So that was actually a game that was made. <laughs> that Especially just since was... I believe the Tolkien estate had already given the license to the developers of the text adventure based on The Hobbit. Yes. So yeah, it was death. Definitely one of those kind of games where it was like, hey, we developed this and they told us no. Yeah, and like I said, right up there was the other one that I looked at. So this is an honorable mention. It's called Revenge of the Beefsteak Tomatoes. And this predates Attack of the Killer Tomatoes. Mm-hmm. Well, it does, it did, but it didn't. It was kind of stolen, backslash, inspired by the idea. They kind of came out roughly i think this was ba- this was inspired by the script attack of the killer tomatoes okay not that this came out before i think it came out before but it was inspired by the script cuz 20th century fox actually backed up this game like they actually helped make this game and in the game you play a professional tomato sprayer which you must trap the revolting produce by building a wall and sailing them behind it but don't think the tomatoes are going to take that kind of ketchup 
Yes, I'm actually reading one of Bob's <laughs> blurbs about it. They'll toss you an exploding. They'll toss at you exploding tomato bombs and attack from above with flying beefsteak tomatoes. And the cover art is a tomato looking like a bull. And then there's tomato bulls behind them with wings dropping tomatoes. So obviously, bull beef. You get it. Beef steak, yeah. So the the reviewer here has the list of what we like and what we don't like. Uh, they did say that the musical score with this was very good for what for what it was, and that there were multiple difficulty settings. The things they didn't like was the fact that you have infinite number lives, and you would just oh. instantly respawn right where you died. That sounds like it takes all the difficulty out of it. It does. It says it negates the game's inherent challenge. So, yeah. Oh. Oh, and I did have another follow-up, which was the Kool-Aid Man's video game. Yes, yes. Another one of the product tie-ins. Which actually had a really good opening graphic, according to this reviewer, and it was very bright and colorful. However, you did not know what you were playing. So you would literally sit down to this game. There were no rules. You didn't know what your objective was. You just kind of played. It's like a pick up and die. Sounds that way. We're going to take a short break and uh, recover our brains from this odd assortment. And when we return, we will have this day in gaming history. the irregulars head over to www.patreon.com backslash fc3roc we're part of the media division of flower city comic-con based in rochester new york we're a non-profit group everything we make off of patreon and everything else we do goes right back into putting on our future conventions and other events from reserving the facilities to bringing in guests if you pledge any amount even a slim dollar you will receive improved access to my blog entries, where every Tuesday I go over current video game news and write retrospectives on old-school arcade games, all delivered conveniently to your inbox. There's plenty of other perks and rewards, and if you don't see what you're looking for, reach out to the crew. They'll be happy to work with you. Want to get a hold of us in particular? You can email Christy directly at k-r-i-s-s-i at fc3roc.org. And me at J-A-M-E-S at F-C-3-R-O-C dot org. At the moment, we're still working out most social media matters, but we are indeed on Facebook at Gaming Street Irregulars. Chrissy and I are fairly frequently there sharing news and things we find cool. And begging, I mean asking, for your questions and answers to be used in upcoming episodes. Yeah, asking. That's the ticket. We love hearing from you all, whether you have praise, constructive criticism, or just want to share something cool and gaming-related yourselves. Also, wherever you find FC3 on social media, we're usually not too far behind. So if you reach out to them with something for us, they'll get it to us shortly. Legally speaking, 
All music, sound effects, voice clips, and so on are the properties of their respective owners. We make no claim to them and have no intention of profiting off of them. Please don't sue us. We have nothing you'd want. Well, it was an embarrassment of riches when I was trying to pick out this day in gaming history's uh, pr- product. We had the the release of the Nintendo dual screen in Japan. We had the release of Beyond Good and Evil, the Xbox version in the United States and Canada. And we had all kinds of other things, but I had to go with a follow-up to the release of the GameCube, which we talked about a few weeks ago. Mm-hmm. In 2001 was the U.S. release of Super Smash Bros. Melee. Ooh. Yeah, if you want to talk about the sequel being better than the original, this is the poster child. Going from the original game's 12 characters, after you unlocked everything, to Melee's 25 was a revelation. And so many much-wanted characters first popped up in the Smash series in this one, like Bowser, Zelda, and this game was where... North America got their first taste of the Fire Emblem series when those Ooh. characters made their uh, appearance in, in that game. And they were originally going to be cut. Yeah, they were trying to figure out which characters to put in. And I think I think at this time, Nintendo probably realized that if they put in characters the American audience didn't know, the American audience is going to want to know what games they came from and want to play those games. Yeah. So, I think they suddenly realized... And now it seems like Fire Emblem has taken over more of the Smash roster than it actually has. Because every time we see another uh, protagonist from an RPG, the community is like, Oh, it's another anime swordsman. Pretty much. You know, they they have to oversaturate it somehow. That's why why I'm kind of really excited for WB's Multiverse. Because it's going to be a little different. Yes. Because there's not going to be anime swordsmen every five seconds. Although my favorite character in Smash is Ness with his baseball bat. Mm. I'm a, I love Earthbound. If only they would have Earthbound, Earthbound 3 come over. I know. I know. Anyhow, I think that's going to do it for this week. On behalf of Chrissy Harding, I'm James Irish. Thanks for tuning in. And as always, game on. Bye, everyone. Have you played Atari today?